Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, journalist Shireen Kyler meets former Tory MP. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now hit podcaster Rory Stewart Columnist Eva Wiseman counts the clinical cost of heartbreak. And finally, writer Ryan Gilby sits down with Tarantino legend and cultural icon, actor Pam Greer. Now, he's been an award-winning author, an academic, a diplomat, a soldier, and a cabinet minister. Now he's a hit podcaster with The Rest is Politics and still dreams of changing the world. The recovering Tory, Rory Stewart, talks to Shireen Kyler about his friendship with Alistair Campbell, the gaffes that haunt him, and his fears about Boris Johnson. Read by Jonathan Keeble. Rory Stewart has long been a man out of time. At three, he named his rocking horse Bucephalus, after Alexander the Great's famed steed. At six, he was reading Jane Austen. At 29, he walked across rural Afghanistan, dodging Taliban fighters to emulate the daring do of the 18th-century explorers he grew up idolising. At 30, 
he was made deputy governor of Maisem province during the Iraq war, effectively serving as the modern equivalent of a colonial administrator. I always wanted to try to live a life that would feel like a storybook, the former conservative MP muses on a video call from New York. Only now, at 49, is Stuart plunging into the zeitgeist as a hit podcaster. The rest is politics, which he presents with the former Labour spin doctor Alastair Campbell, regularly tops the UK podcast charts. He has found an unlikely following among liberal-leaning politics fans who would typically shun anything to do with an ex-Tory cabinet minister, but gives Stuart a pass because of his willingness to excoriate Boris Johnson and share juicy titbits of Conservative Party gossip. I came into it not really knowing what I was doing, says Stuart, and it's been a surprisingly strange and painless experience. We just sit down for an hour and chat. It's slightly bizarre that anyone wants to listen to this. Tyler's in an open-necked white shirt, Stuart speaks in full sentences, occasionally grimacing when asked a knotty question. He characterises Campbell and himself as centrist dads who talk about politics, albeit centrist dads who complain about being exhausted from all their international travel, pull in guests, including the Labour leader Keir Starmer, and reminisce about their encounters with world leaders. The son of a spy and former colonial official, Stuart was born in Hong Kong, although his family hails from Perth and Kinross, and he spent much of his childhood in Kensington. He once jokingly described himself as lower upper middle class. He was sent to boarding school in Oxford at eight, then attended Eton. It made me very bad at dealing with women, he says. I was in an all-male environment until I was 18. It took me a long time to learn anything about British society. These schools are like islands floating in the sea. They have no connection. You might as well be in a space camp. He spent five months as a soldier in the Black Watch after finishing school, before studying at Oxford, where he attended a single meeting of the Bullingdon Club, the notorious all-male dining club whose members have included Boris Johnson and David Cameron. It seemed to be an extreme statement of a very unpleasant vision of a class system that was completely undignified, he recalls. I thought it was unpleasant. I thought people should be ashamed of that kind of stuff. After university, he worked for the Foreign Office, or MI6, depending on whom you believe, in the Balkans, before taking an extended leave of absence to travel extensively across the Middle East. He returned to the Foreign Office after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, publishing a memoir of his time there in 2006. Occupational Hazards details Stuart's growing disillusionment with the war. Initially supportive, he came to realise the folly of the coalition's activities in the country. At times, the memoir reads like black farce, with Stuart dispensing bundles of cash to corrupt local officials, failing to mediate between warring factions and almost dying in a siege of his compound. I think the basic problem with Iraq is that people simply didn't understand what they were doing, he says now. They had a fantasy in their minds of a country that didn't exist. Is it strange to be doing a podcast with one of the architects of the Iraq War? 
I interviewed him a couple of years ago, when I was thinking of setting up my own podcast. But I never released it, Stuart says. The entire hour was me trying to talk about what it was like on the ground in Iraq, trying to understand what he thought was happening and why he'd signed up for this. He says he's been encouraging Campbell to read Occupational Hazards. Stuart draws a parallel between his concerns about Iraq and the unease a Labour supporter such as Campbell might feel towards him as a former Conservative politician. There's the anxieties that I, and I guess people who agree with me, would have about things like the Iraq War, Stuart says. And then there is, for him, the other side of it, which is that he's got many listeners and friends and supporters who think that Tories are evil and will be equally horrified by my voting record. He sees the podcast as a way to reconcile people with opposing points of views in a spirit of robust debate. I genuinely feel a lot of admiration and respect and fondness for him, and I think and hope that's reciprocated, says Stuart. These are noble sentiments in our polarised times, but I wonder whether such magnanimity is possible only when you haven't suffered devastating loss as a result of either person's decision-making. No airstrikes on your home, no relatives made destitute by government cuts. I also wonder whether Campbell and Stuart aren't more ideologically aligned than they suggest. They are white, centrist Scottish men who have been booted out of their parties. Stuart lost the Conservative whip in 2019 after voting against the government to block a no-deal Brexit and subsequently resigned from the party. Campbell was expelled from Labour the same year after admitting he voted Liberal Democrat in the European elections. They are also doting family men, frequently mentioning their children on the podcast. Stuart is married to Shoshana, the CEO of a cultural heritage charity, Turquoise Mountain. They have two sons, aged seven and five. He delivered the firstborn, Alexander, on their bathroom floor, without medical assistance. We were timing contractions and thought it was all fine, Stuart says, and suddenly the baby started to come. But I did it. I mean, obviously my wife did it. She was remarkably calm about the whole thing. The family lives in Jordan, where Turquoise Mountain has operations. The Rest is Politics recently hosted Starmer. I was disappointed, says Stuart. There's so much that I admired from a distance about him. I liked the idea of him. What disappointed me was that he didn't seem radical enough... I didn't get what the big picture was. I got the impression of a likeable, thoughtful, moderate guy. But I didn't feel the radical ambition. In general, he thinks that politicians, even former politicians, are too guarded to be interesting interviewees. Stuart is one of Johnson's most reliable antagonists, variously describing the soon-to-be XPM as a monster, the best liar we've ever had and evil. Now that Johnson has been deposed, will Stuart stop kicking him? I think he is dangerous, and there are people out there who want him to come back, Stuart says. I think we need to remind people why he left. He should have gone much, much earlier. What he did was deeply, deeply shameful and dangerous. 
He thinks Johnson will attempt to return to frontbench politics. He's trying to do an Imran Khan or a Berlusconi. He's going to be hovering around, hoping for a populist return. On the rest is politics. Stewart is noticeably less critical of Rishi Sunak than Liz Truss, although he stops short of expressing support for either. He expresses his tentative hopes that a Truss premiership might finally spell the end of the Conservative Party's long march to the right. I hope that what we have next is a coalition, and through that accomplish a change to our electoral system, he says. I think that's really important to the country. When he was in frontline politics, first as an MP, then as a Minister for the Environment, International Development, Africa and Prisons, before becoming Secretary of State for International Development, Stuart represented a now-defunct tribe of centrist Tories. He regrets that the party's lurch to the right has displaced politicians of his ilk. There is an enormous gaping hole in the centre ground, Stuart says. There is a constituency for moderate, centre-right conservatives who can embrace the environment, climate, gender, race, social justice, doing much more on poverty, much more on social care, much more on prisons, but also be fiscally responsible. Stuart's problem has long been that he is the acceptable face of conservatism for people who don't vote conservative. That was something when I ran for the leadership against Boris Johnson in 2019, he says, sighing. Everyone said, the problem with this guy is that he's the favourite for everybody who would never vote conservative. But Stuart very much was a conservative, something that left-wing followers of the rest is politics might discover to their horror were they to check his voting record. As an MP, Stuart voted in favour of a stricter asylum system, raising tuition fees, introducing the bedroom tax and cutting welfare benefits. Stuart has defended his voting record by pointing out that MPs have to vote with their parties to retain the whip, which can sometimes mean voting in support of measures they do not agree with. Are there any votes he particularly regrets? He pauses for a long time, a characteristic grimace. I think we got austerity wrong, he says finally. I realised in the departments I went into, most dramatically in prisons, that these cuts were close to insane. They had removed so many prison officers while allowing the prison population to go up that violence tripled in five years. All the windows were broken in Liverpool prison and couldn't be fixed. Stuart's best quality is that he engages with criticism, chewing over questions and working out a response, rather than shutting down or becoming evasive. But this is also the quality that rendered him ill-suited for the snake pit of coalface politics. Thinking out loud is not always useful, he says. There are times to be discreet and thoughtful. His honesty can be a problem, as in 2020 when he was running for Mayor of London and admitted to sharing bathwater with his wife and children. Most people were completely disgusted, he says, chuckling. But there was a fringe kind of grungy eco-warrior that quite liked that. During his campaign to become Tory leader, meanwhile, he revealed that he had once smoked opium at a wedding in Iran. That was not very helpful, he says, suddenly serious. 
I was trying to launch my social care policy in an interview with The Telegraph, and I got zero lines on my social care policy. All I got was three days of headlines saying I was a morally irresponsible drug user who would never be allowed to visit the US because I hadn't declared on my immigration form that I'd used drugs. One of the slips he most regrets took place shortly after he was elected as the MP for Penrith and the Border in 2010. Stewart referred to areas in his constituency as pretty primitive, people holding up their trousers with bits of twine, that sort of thing. Now, he says, I had everyone saying, this shows he's an out-of-touch toff. The BBC were asking me on air whether I was going to resign. I felt worse than I'd ever felt in my life. I felt I completely betrayed my constituents, that everything I'd done in politics was meaningless, that everything was destroyed, that my life was worthless. After leaving Parliament, Stuart became a fellow at Yale, teaching politics and international relations. He doesn't miss being a politician. I found that it was very, very bad for me, for my personality type, he says. It brings out the worst in me. I thought it was bad for my brain, my body, my soul. I became anxious. I didn't like myself. I really hated the fact that I would end up on the one hand being critical of party leaders and on the other hand creeping up to them and being super polite to them, hoping I was going to get a job. And then I'd really hate myself. Even Stuart's detractors would concede that he is thoughtful and intellectually impressive, with a deep understanding of foreign affairs drawn from his travels through the Middle East, as well as his time in the Balkans in his twenties. They might also point out that Stuart benefited from one of the most expensive educations that money can buy. On a number of big judgment calls, he got it right. Whether it was calling for a Covid lockdown in early March 2020, when the government was paralysed by indecision, or warning of the dangers of Russian aggression in 2015. He fears that we are going into a much deeper economic recession than people realise. I think there's a 40 to 50% chance we could be entering a 10-year recession in Europe. But there are aspects of Stuart's career that raise uncomfortable questions. Although he subsequently became disillusioned with the Iraq war, that does not change the fact that he volunteered to run a large swathe of the country at the age of 30 as part of an unelected occupying force. Then there is Stuart's walk across Afghanistan, which he documented in his 2004 bestseller The Places in Between. Stuart effectively threw himself upon the generosity of impoverished communities during his solo walk across remote, mountainous regions in the depths of winter. He occasionally shouts at villagers in hunger and frustration when they refuse to take him in, and gripes about the quality of the food some offer him. Should Stuart, a privileged Western outsider, have relied upon the goodwill of people with so much less than him in his pursuit of an enriching cultural experience? That's right, he says. I did actually, in those houses, leave money for people. I would hide it behind a cushion because people wouldn't take money off me. So in purely financial terms, technically, people were better off after I'd stayed than not. But you're absolutely right. There's something very odd about what's happening there. I'm completely dependent on them. They're keeping me alive, 
they're feeding me, and I'm benefiting incredibly from that culture of generosity. It's an extraordinary privilege to be able to do that, and it's not a culture of generosity that was created to allow some young English person to have an exciting adventure. But it is also worth pointing out that Stuart includes these unflattering passages in his book. Many writers would probably have left them out. And he does appear sincerely committed to improving the lives of poorer communities. He is about to start a new job as the CEO of Give Directly, a non-profit that allows donors to send money directly to the poorest people in eight African nations and Yemen. There's just a fundamental problem with development, which is that it involves outsiders, often foreigners, deciding what's good for you, Stuart says. Direct cash transfers empower impoverished communities. The idea is that it's their dignity. It's their choice on what they do. Typically, people will fix their house, buy a cow, manure for the fields, connect to electricity, dig a latrine, sign up to government health insurance. It's amazing, the transformation to people's lives with quite a small amount of financial assistance. Still in his forties, Stuart has already lived many lives. As an award-winning writer, a cabinet minister, a podcaster, an academic, a soldier and a diplomat. Now comes another ambitious challenge. I think we have a chance of ending extreme poverty worldwide, he says, absolutely impassioned. I can lead a movement starting in Africa that can demonstrate in a couple of countries how it could be done. And after Stuart ends world poverty? I'd like to take a camel from Morocco to Timbuktu, he says. That was Being an MP Was Bad for My Brain, Body and Soul. Rory Stewart on Politics, Privilege and Podcast Stardom by Shireen Kale. Read by Jonathan Keeble. Next, poets and songwriters have long known that love hurts. But now, Eva Wiseman discovers scientists are examining the physical anguish caused by a breakup and the results are helping people understand and recover from their distress. Read by Elena Maria. In the winter of 2004, women started arriving at Japanese hospitals complaining of chest pains and a shortness of breath. It was a month since a major earthquake had shaken the country, causing mudslides in the mountains, injuring 4,805 people and killing 68. In emergency rooms, doctors hooked the women up to ECG monitors and saw the same extreme changes they'd expect with heart attacks. But subsequent tests showed their coronary arteries weren't blocked as they would be by a heart attack. Instead, their hearts had changed shape. It didn't take long for these cases to be diagnosed as Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, or broken heart syndrome. Heartbreak is not simply a metaphor. Today, up to 7% of all sudden cardiac hospital admissions in Japan are diagnosed as Takotsubo when stress hormones after a traumatic event have caused a weakening of the left ventricle, meaning it can no longer pump effectively. For a while, it gives up. It hurts. And it clearly shows the link between the stresses happening in a person's life 
whether an earthquake or the end of a relationship, in their heart. This understanding is one of the things that's leading to heartbreak being taken seriously in a way it never has been before. There have been pop songs about heartbreak, of course. There have been novels and films and many thousands of poems. But now, after years of concentrating simply on the process of falling in love, scientists are starting to look at the end of love, too. Today, there are books that unpick the science of heartbreak and memoirs detailing the messy, sticky truth of it. And an intensive care retreat for heartbroken women to heal in a very nice hotel in the Peak District. All newly seeking to understand this slow torture. Romance's estranged cousin, wrote Rachel Cusk in her 2012 divorce memoir, a cruel character, all sleeplessness and adrenaline unsweetened by hope. Annie Lord's heartbreak arrived one evening on Euston Road, London, when her boyfriend said he needed to be alone. Her memoir, Notes on Heartbreak, evolved from a long love letter she wrote to him afterwards, but never sent. To explore her pain, she returns to memories of the relationship, finding a kind of solace in the realization that in order to get over her boyfriend, she doesn't have to forget him altogether. She remembers, she tells me, looking out of the window and finding it impossible to accept that most people she saw had gone through this agony. How was the world still functioning? In a grief observed about the loss of his wife, C.S. Lewis says grief feels like suspense. It comes from the frustration of so many impulses that had become habitual. Reading that, Lord recognized the sensation. She was waiting for something that would never come. For him to come around the corner asking where the towels were or to feel his leg hit me in bed, knowing others had gone through something similar, I felt less alone with my experiences. But it was reading about the science of heartbreak that had the biggest impact. Saying, I'm going through a breakup, didn't do what I was feeling, justice. It felt too small, too ordinary. So Lord sought out studies, learning things like the way your breathing adjusts to another person's when you're together for a long time, how in grief some people's hearts really do break, or the fact that your brain craves that person the same way you would cocaine. Biological anthropologist Helen Fisher studied people who had been dumped and found the parts of the brain activated were those associated with addiction. A person rejected feels the same kinds of pain and craving they might with drugs and alcohol. They go through withdrawal, and they can relapse too many months later, a midnight phone call, a stone at a window. All of this helped me realize what I was feeling was justified, that I was going through something clinically awful. There have been hundreds of studies into the beginnings of love, but why has it taken so long for scientists to investigate its end, this clinically awful state? Science has become more sophisticated at looking at transcription factors in our genome, says writer Florence Williams. We are used to relegating heartbreak to cultural melodrama like popular songs and romantic poetry. But heartbreak isn't just melodrama. 
It's one of the most painful life experiences we have, and we need to take it seriously for our mental and physical health. When Williams's husband left her after 25 years, she felt imperiled. She was plodding through her days, managing to feed her kids and occasionally meet her deadlines as a science journalist, but constantly falling ill, getting thin, unable to sleep. At 50, she'd never experienced anything like it, this disorienting sorrow, shame, and peril. Not only did she want to figure out what heartbreak was doing to her body, she wanted to work out how to get better. Would she be among the 15% of people who don't recover after a major breakup? She set to work. Heartbreak, genomics researcher Steve Cole told her, is one of the hidden landmines of human existence. Concealed in the undergrowth of our relationships, it explodes at an unexpected moment, over dinner, at Christmas time, at a wedding, in bed. Among its documented effects, Williams found, are fragmented sleep, increased anxiety, poor impulse control, depression, cognitive decline, altered gene expression, and early death. When this peculiar pain is studied, the findings are often as shocking and poetic as the art they inspire. For example, scan the brain of a heartbroken person and the same parts light up as somebody who has suffered a burn. Like the pain of returning to a fire, of reaching across a double bed and smelling smoke. Williams was surprised by how dramatically the pain of heartbreak registers in our bodies. The feelings that come with heartbreak, grief, loneliness, anxiety, are acutely monitored by our nervous systems and our immune cells, which adjust to these emotions in preparation for confrontations and outcomes. Our cells listen for loneliness, she says. That really blew me away. And it explains why people going through a big breakup face higher risk of early mortality and a number of diseases, particularly if they don't work hard to process the pain. To further discover how heartbreak impacts our brains, Williams interviewed a behavioral neuroscientist called Zoe Donaldson, who studies prairie voles. Prairie voles are even more committed to monogamy than humans, with around 75% staying together for life. In Donaldson's Heartbreak Lab, the voles live in boxes with their partners, huddling until one day when she parts them, hiding their lover behind a door. A certain grief sets in. How hard is the vole willing to work to be with its mate? And how long will it take for him to accept she is no longer there? One vole continued to press the lever to open the door for three hours, and the researchers continued to monitor what was happening in its brain. Through a sensor implanted in the nucleus accumbens, a part of the brain associated with emotional learning and addiction, Donaldson can watch individual neurons firing. The region is a sponge for the oxytocin and dopamine that get released during mating and it likely encodes positive memories as well as the desire to repeat those memories, writes Williams in her book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. It also turns out to be one of the main areas of difference between prairie voles and their sluttier meadow vole cousins who shun monogamy. 
The metal voles don't have many cell receptors for oxytocin in that region of their brain. Heartbroken humans, however, show plenty. In a human's functional MRI scans, the nucleus accumbens is particularly active while looking at pictures of lost loved ones. Basically, love boils down to this, Williams concludes, a strong emotion attached to memories. Metal voles enjoy mating, but memories of their lovers don't carry the same emotional resonance. Heartbreak doesn't touch them. In our next lives, let's all come back as metal voles. I wonder how it feels for Williams, for her identity to have become so entwined with heartbreak in the very worst moments of her life. She loves it, she says. I love that I've been able to help so many people, that I've helped make big emotions something we can feel a little more comfortable with. I absolutely believe vulnerability leads to connection and growth. Through going deep into heartbreak, she has found, she tells me, a sense of purpose. Psychologist Alice Haddon has discovered similar purpose, but she arrived there on a different journey. At the beginning of the pandemic, Haddon's mother died, and in her grief, she couldn't find a route back to the way she'd worked for 20 years. She referred on her clients and closed her practice. One morning, she was listening to the radio, a program about romantic fraud and financial infidelity when women are groomed or seduced online. A man had run off with this woman's money and her voice came out of the radio so distraught and she just said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go to get support. I was like, and Haddon's hands open and her eyes widen. Oh, soon after, she co-founded the Heartbreak Hotel in the Peak District. When guests arrive, there is cake waiting. Everybody puts their phones into a box, and that evening, they share their stories of heartbreak. Haddon has had guests who've been through financial betrayal, guests who've been left at the altar, guests whose husbands have left them for younger women or who have been seeing sex workers for years behind their backs. But from the following morning, through long walks and therapy sessions, including with an EMDR therapist specializing in PTSD, 30% of guests to the Heartbreak Hotel, Haddon claims, meet the criteria for PTSD when they arrive. There's a moratorium on talking about the betrayer. Betrayal has a particular mechanism of rumination. It's such a disorientating experience. Something that was safe has become very dangerous, Haddon explains. We ask ourselves questions, endless questions. When did it happen? Why didn't I see it? Did I see it and choose to ignore it? But that thinking process prevents us from feeling the pain of the loss, and we know from a psychological point of view that's what has to be felt in order to accept it's happened. So we have to get the person who's betrayed them out of the picture for the weekend. For the rest of the weekend, the guests focus solely on themselves. There's a lot of laughter, she says. Heartbreak Hotel is only inviting women at the moment because there's a particular context within which women sit and within which their betrayal happens. These are usually mothers or carers, she says, women in service to others, defined within a patriarchal structure, and so their internal sense of themselves is created within that context. 
when a betrayal happens, they haven't checked in with themselves for a long time. The arc of the program is designed to take women away from their heartbreak and into the next chapter of their life. It's about equivalent to six months of one-to-one -one therapy, she says. These women get to stay in their process. They get to witness it for each other. And then later, in a WhatsApp group, they continue to look after each other. I'm very passionate, Haddon says, a little self-consciously, about getting women back together with themselves. You can't take the betrayal away. You can't take the pain away. But you can put somebody in a different position where they can focus on themselves and support each other and flourish. Through her research into the science of heartbreak, Williams tiptoed her way through the pain. I divide the healing into three big categories, calming, connecting, and finding purpose. Spending time in nature was useful to her, as was therapy, both conventional and un, and a happy rebound relationship. She also really liked getting off with a stranger under a tree in the moonlight. Later, on a psychedelic trip, she saw herself and her emotions as molecules, beads in a huge curtain, and emerged feeling less afraid of being alone. Internally, I feel more in touch with my emotions, and because of that, more alive. I feel better able to cultivate beauty and awe and joy. I feel more empathic, and I have deeper connections to the people in my life I care about. That is the great unexpected lesson, when we are lucky and we work at it, of heartbreak. As well as giving clarity to its horrors, a flake of solace to those tangled in bedsheets or crying on buses, the science behind heartbreak offers something else, something bigger. Falling in love cracks us open. It alters the brain permanently, making us more sensitive in ways that can bring both glee and misery. Those that are able to climb inside the grief and guts of heartbreak then dig their way out, whether using pop songs, therapy, science, or patient friends, find themselves wiser, improved. Their stakes have risen. My heart is scarred, says Williams, but it's more open. That was Clinically Awful, Why the Pain of a Broken Heart is Real, by Eva Wiseman, read by Elena Maria. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, Pam Greer went from being a secretary to the face of black exploitation. As a new British Film Institute season celebrates her wild career, the Jackie Brown star tells Ryan Gilby she has one more goal, playing a one-armed zombie. This article includes offensive language around race, read by Elena Maria. Pam Greer was at the cinema with friends in the early 1990s, watching a violent thriller by a hot young director when she experienced a minor shock. The motor-mouthed crooks up on the screen were shooting the breeze. Their conversation turned to black female action stars of the 1970s. And suddenly, there it was. The name Pam Greer 
uttered admiringly by Tim Roth and Chris Penn. My friends were all standing up and screaming right there in the theater, she recalls. And what did she do? I slid down into my seat. I couldn't believe they were talking about me. The movie was Reservoir Dogs, and its director, Quentin Tarantino, happened to be a devoted connoisseur of Greer's career, everything from the sweaty, seedy, women-in-prison movies she made in the early 1970s, such as The Big Doll House and The Big Bird Cage, to tough-nosed, vigilante action thrillers such as Foxy Brown, in which she secretes a pistol in her afro and dishes out street justice in a variety of groovy threads. Who can forget the matching floral headscarf and balloon sleeve blouse she wears while confronting her no-good duplicitous brother? That's my sister, baby, he reflects after she has trashed his home. And she's a whole lot of woman. The 73-year-old actor is speaking from the bucolic setting of her ranch. The horses are making lots of noise, she says cheerily. They're like, what up, Mom? They always want to know who I'm talking to, so I told them it's the Guardian. They said, what Guardian? Do they have carrots? Today, she is in New Mexico. Then next week, I'll be in Colorado. And after that, who knows? She comes to London this month as part of a retrospective season at the British Film Institute, BFI. Pam Greer, foxy, fierce, and fearless, which shows how she rose to become one of the leading stars of U.S. black exploitation cinema. What started as a scrappy guerrilla filmmaking movement in the 1970s soon developed into a successful formula with stylish crossover hits, including three Shaft movies featuring Richard Roundtree as a no-nonsense gumshoe, plus that funky, sultry Isaac Hayes theme song, and Superfly, Ron O'Neill as a coke dealer quitting crime to a score by Curtis Mayfield. Vehicles led by Greer, such as Foxy Brown, Friday Foster, and Sheba Baby, as well as Cleopatra Jones, starring her one-time flatmate Tamara Dobson, added fuel to the black exploitation blaze. It was Coffee that gave Greer her first lead role in the genre in 1973, casting her as a nurse taking revenge on the dealers who got her kid sister hooked on drugs. Near the start of the film, she strolls into surgery fresh from having spent the evening posing as a sex worker, shooting one dealer in the head with a sawn-off shotgun and plunging a syringe of heroin into another. Then things get really nasty. Blaxploitation was not without its critics, many of whom felt that it dealt only in demeaning stereotypes, pimps, pushers, junkies, and crooks. But in Greer's autobiography, Foxy, My Life in Three Acts, she mounts a spirited defense of the films that made her a star. To me, what really stood out in the genre was women of color acting like heroes, she writes, describing her typical characters as street-smart women who were proud of who they were. They were far more aggressive and progressive than the Hollywood stereotypes. The centerpiece of the BFI season and re-released across UK cinemas this month is Jackie Brown, the bittersweet 1997 thriller that Greer made with Tarantino. After dropping that first hint of fandom in Reservoir Dogs, he called her in to read for a minor part in Pulp Fiction as the girlfriend of a drug dealer played by Eric Stoltz. 
she still remembers the first time she walked into the filmmaker's office for the audition. Quentin had my posters up on the walls, she says. I was honored to see them because what I had been part of was a female cinematic revolution. That part in Pulp Fiction went to Rosanna Arquette. Eric only came up to my waist, laughs Greer now, but consolations don't come much mightier than what happened next. Adapting Elmore Leonard's novel, Rum Punch, about a middle-aged flight attendant double-crossing the FBI agents who catch her in a drug-running and money-laundering sting, the director changed the main character's surname from Burke to Brown in homage to Foxy and shaped the part to correspond with Greer and her history. The result was her richest performance and a film that is widely regarded as Tarantino's masterpiece. She almost didn't receive the script. Tarantino hadn't put enough stamps on the envelope, so it languished at the post office for several weeks before Greer got around to paying the shortfall. Then when I looked at the handwritten address, I thought it was some fan sending me photographs to sign or something, she says. It was a fan, all right. Only someone convinced of Greer's greatness could have written her such a juicy, demanding part. She brought a lifetime of warmth, sagacity, and weariness to her performance as Jackie. Arrested at the airport for flying in with $50,000 and a sachet of cocaine, she is pointedly reminded by the white arresting officers that, as a black woman in her mid-40s with grim career prospects, she has no option other than to strike a deal. Greer, who went eight hours without a bathroom break during the shooting of that scene to help inhabit Jackie's discomfort, conveys a sullen, guarded hurt and a defiant steeliness. The movie represented her comeback. Though she wasn't exactly on her uppers before Tarantino came calling, she had recently worked with John Carpenter on Escape from L.A. and Tim Burton, Mars Attacks. But it was Jackie Brown that ushered a new variety of roles her way, such as Jane Campion's feverish Holy Smoke, in which she played the lover of a deprogramming counselor, Harvey Keitel, who is trying to extricate a young woman, Kate Winslet, from a cult. With a Golden Globe nomination for Jackie Brown under her belt, she was back in business. Greer was born in 1949 in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Her mother a nurse, her father an officer in the U.S. Air Force. Life on a succession of military bases tended to be pleasant with a diverse population. Stray into town, though, and the whiff of racism was ever-present. Walking home in Columbus, Ohio with her mother, who was struggling with heavy shopping bags, the six-year-old Greer noticed one empty bus after another zooming past them. Why won't the bus stop for us, Mom? she asked. Because we're Negroes, her mother replied. Her father's job meant she was never in one place for long. Somewhat improbably, she even lived for two years in Swindon, UK, where she learned to play cricket at school and taught her English friends skipping rope games from back home. Back in the U.S., her life became more emotionally fractured after her parents broke up when she was 13. She was raised through her teenage years by her mother. At 18, Greer won a beauty pageant organized by the radio station where she was working as a receptionist in Denver, Colorado. A Hollywood agent who represented Richard Roundtree spotted a spark of potential in the way she carried herself and advised her to move to Los Angeles. 
There, she found bits of work as a backing singer while also holding down a receptionist job at the talent agency APA, which, funnily enough, she signed to as a client this summer. It was here that an agent invited her to audition for the producer, Roger Corman, who was casting a new prison B-movie, The Big Dollhouse, to be shot in the Philippines. It's about women in a prison in the jungle, the agent told her. Bondage, torture, attempted escape, punishment, drug addiction, machine guns, sex, the usual. She was nonplussed by the offer. But one audition later, she was on her way to the Philippines. Never having acted before, she learned on the job with the filmmaker Jack Hill, who directed her in several other movies, including Coffee and Foxy Brown, serving as her mentor. It was he who told me that I needed to reach into my gut, not my mind, to find the real emotion. A rash of movies followed in quick succession. This was the Corman way, shooting back-to-back -back quickies using the same sets, crews, and locations. But Greer always felt as though she was on borrowed time, even as she began to become famous. In fact, she only agreed to the Corman films in the first place on the proviso that her receptionist job would be waiting for her once shooting was finished. Elements of the women in prison genre may seem baffling to modern audiences with their stark menu of nudity, subjugation, violence, and revenge. In Black Mama, White Mama, there is a shower scene within the first five minutes, the female inmates happily soaping themselves while the lesbian warden ogles them through a hole in the wall. Later, Greer and another prisoner are locked naked inside the oven, a vertical tin box standing in the blazing sun, before throttling a guard with a chain that binds them together. It's a damn sight livelier than the Shawshank Redemption. Greer looks back on those productions with affection. There can't be fun, she says. You've got nudity, wet t-shirts. The dialogue isn't that great. You can't take them too seriously. But audiences also got to see women of color stand up and speak up. Everyone knew that they'd been oppressed for so long, never allowed to fight back. A fellow cast member on The Big Dollhouse told her that, it's only a B picture. You don't have to work that hard. Yet Greer has brought the same commitment to most of the 100-plus roles she's played, even when the project was patently ridiculous. Take the 1972 science fiction horror, The Twilight People. The cinema marquees of the day put it best, half beast, all monster, Pam Greer as the Panther Woman. She chuckles at the memory. They told me you'll be playing a part Panther. I said I'll take it. You've got Godzilla and King Kong, and now here I am playing the Panther Woman. I'm in good company, she pauses for a second. I still have the teeth somewhere. All the tomfoolery and gaudiness of those early pictures hit a serious purpose, she says. Audiences were hungry for a female action hero, just as black actors were sick of being cast as nannies and maids. Looking back, she notes that there were not many opportunities for people of color. You had to create jobs and careers. Black culture was not merely hard won, but liable to be overlooked or eradicated. When Richard Pryor was writing Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks, he asked me, were there really black people in the West? I said, hell yeah. 
It wasn't taught in schools, but there were black rodeos, black cowboys. We weren't in the history books. We were erased because we didn't matter, and it would only arouse hostility from the people who didn't want to share the narrative or the historic winnings of building this country. There is a direct line, she explains, from that history of erasure to her choice of roles. I felt it important for women of color not to be invisible anymore. That they aren't is partly down to Greer. Her early work is justly celebrated and recognized as part of the black cinema canon. The reputation of Jackie Brown, which turns 25 this year, continues to rise. And her memoir, which details everything from the childhood sexual abuse she suffered at the hands of boys in her neighborhood to her turbulent romances with the likes of Pryor and the basketball star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, is being adapted for television after several faltering attempts to turn it into a film. Casting is about to begin. We just have to find the right foot for the shoe, she says. In recent years, she has been whooping it up in comedies such as Palms, Aging Cheerleaders, and Bad Grandmas, Granny's Hide a Dead Body. To those wondering what there could possibly be left for her to do, she has news. I just made a film about a zombie apocalypse, she announces, referring to the forthcoming as we know it. The publicist is trying to wrap up our conversation and hustle her on to the next appointment, but Greer isn't having any of it. I want to play a zombie, she continues. I want to drop an arm or a leg in a driveway. Have you ever seen a zombie ride an escalator? No, they stand there hypnotized by the moving steps. We can live with them, okay? Half zombies, I mean, not full ones. All they want is to drink at the bar. They gotta learn to pay with money, not some half-eaten corn cob. Who knows where she's going with all this? Only a fool, however, wouldn't want to find out. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to, and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Jonathan Keeble and Elena Maria and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter and Cheyenne Bryan. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Nicole Jackson and Isabel Rugel. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.